0: It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hey, friends, this is Andy. This episode of Accelerate is brought to you by KiteDesk. KiteDesk is the all-in-one sales development platform that lets you manage all of your sales development activities, such as email, direct dial phone calls, and your daily to-dos, all in one place to open up conversations, book more qualified meetings, and really create a predictable pipeline. KiteDesk flow and KiteDesk find allows us to find exactly the right people in the industries we're looking for in the roles that we're looking for. That's Kite Desk customer Michael Orfis. Michael is head of sales at Stratified. In addition to the all-in-one management of his sales development team's days, Kite Desk helps him with another big part of his job. We have the ability with Kite Desk to do what we call targeted campaigns. Our conversion rate from what we were doing in the past to what we're doing now has been really massive. So, you don't have to take tons of time to research, prospect, then blast large lists of people that never turn into sales opportunities. We're seeing higher clicks, we're seeing higher open rates, and Without question, we've seen a massive increase in pipeline generation. So, to learn more about Kite Desk, schedule a free demo, and learn how to create predictable pipeline at your sales organization, go to kitedesk.com forward slash accelerate. That's k-i-t-e-d-e-s-k dot com slash accelerate. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm excited to welcome back to the show today Jeff Shore, He's an author of multiple books, including Closing 2.0, which we're going to talk about today, as well as President and CEO of Shore Consulting. Jeff, welcome back to Accelerate.
1: Yeah, always an enjoyable conversation. Looking forward to it from my friend.
0: <laughs> yeah, always looking forward to it. So, maybe for people that missed your first appearance on the show, brief mm-hmm. introduction of yourself and what your company does.
1: Uh, yes, uh, there's uh, nine of us at uh, Shore Consulting. We uh, work with uh, a companies largely in the in the B2C, the business to consumer space. Um, we love the emotion-based sale. It's what really interests us more than anything else. Um, but uh, we have the opportunity to work with uh, with companies uh, large and small uh, throughout North America, a little bit of international work uh, as well. But it's been about uh, 17 years uh, for me at Shore Consulting. I was national sales director for a very large home building firm uh, before that.
0: So are a lot of your clients in the real estate space?
1: Yeah, it, that's always been our dominant industry, but we've spent more and more time in other aspects of the B two C environment. So you know, now we've worked, we, we've spent a lot of time working with uh, uh, you know uh, consumer products, uh, home improvement, uh, some some uh, automobile sales, just uh, anywhere where there's a, uh, a a direct sale to a consumer. Uh, that's r- really where our our target market is
0: and a certain price point.
1: I don't really think it matters, I and mean, we, okay. we've worked on on large and small uh, on the price point. Uh, really, it's more a matter of uh, of what goes on in the brain when they're making the decision. I mean, that, that's uh, you and I've had this conversation before, where we share that mutual interest in the psychology mm-hmm. of a purchase decision mm-hmm. and what triggers in people's brain that they're going about that process.
0: So. Is it, you talk about the emotional based sale, the emotion yeah. based sale, not necessarily, right. not necessarily the emotional based sale, but the emotion based sale, B2C, mm-hmm. is that different than sort of the emotion that drives a B2B purchase?
1: Well, you know, there's no question about it. I know you and I agree on this that there is an, emotion, an emotional factor in every sale. There's no question about it. Uh, but when you are in a B two B environment, it tends to be a far more technical sale. You might uh, you might find that there's a longer buying cycle, longer buying process in that. Uh, in that world, and uh, you know, we we are really interested in the the shorter cycle, uh, high emotion. I'm I'm more vested in this, and to some extent, when the emotional consequences are higher of a decision, then it changes the way you go about the division, decision. Versus, say, you know, a purchasing agent for a large corporation who's buying a bunch of copy machines. You know, now I'm looking at it and I'm asking it on. It's still emotional, but it's a different set of emotions. It's emotions of, you know, how do I fit this into the business plan? And what will people think of me if I make a wrong decision on this? And how do I support my stakeholders along those lines versus the consumer based sale that says, this is for me. This is how it's going to affect my life. This is the problem I'm trying to solve right now.
0: Yeah. And my personal money at stake as
1: well. Yes, absolutely. It's a huge, huge factor. No question about it.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you've just. Published a new book and I yes. loved, your, loved your last book. And we mm-hmm. talked about that on the previous show that you're on. So, this one's called Closing 2.0. Yeah. So, why was this book needed? Because I, yeah. I asked this only because you know, we started going through cycles and sales. And one yeah. of the cycles was everybody's writing about sales management and how we need to be yeah. coaching. And then it was all about, uh, well, now coaching is, is certainly coming in, was one. Yeah. Now, closing. I mean, what's, yeah. what's so what's sort of driving this?
1: Yeah, well, that's the question I had to ask myself and answer myself before I could even start to write the book, and and I'm not suggesting that there there isn't a, a body of work out there around the area of closing that isn't very very good, um, but I would look at it and say that the sales process continues to evolve, and we've seen that dramatic evolution over the last fifteen years with right. the access to information being really now the great equalizer. And you know, there was a time, you know, when I first started in sales, I could say to the customer, you know, I have a all the information and, you know, knowledge is power. We all know it. So you can have this and you can have this and I'm going to hold on to this one over here. I might use it later on, right?
0: Yeah, I used to say that, you know, customers could only buy from me back in my career. They could only buy from me as fast as I was prepared to sell to them.
1: Yes, right. And you had all the information, so you sort of held on to the keys. And you
0: had well, the answers,
1: yes. Exactly, yeah. So now that information is ubiquitous, and, and uh, you've got a very, very well educated consumer uh, that is, that, and it says that the very job of the salesperson has changed. Now it's not just simply providing information. The internet can do that. Now it's how do we apply the information, and how do I make the information relevant to your specific situation? So it really it, obviously, it starts with you need to understand your customer well enough to know why the information is going to be relevant in the first place. But then as you do that, the question is, how do you bring them along? Now, what I have seen is a moving away from closing skills uh, because it almost seems uh, a little bit icky, a little bit like, well, if I'm going to be this you know, friendly, partner, trusted advisor type, then I don't want to be in that situation or being too aggressive or too assertive, and I'm going to be losing that. And so I'm trying to find that line uh, in between something that uh, is respectful and partnership-based right. with our customer and yet doesn't give a salesperson a pass to say, well, they'll let me know uh, when they're ready to buy. So so that's where I was trying to look at. In fact, one of the things that I uh, I said to my editor uh, throughout the process of writing the book, uh, my editor has nothing to do with sales. She's not a salesperson, but I, I, I asked her, I said, I wanna write a book that any of the customers of my audience would be comfortable reading. And I'm sure you would agree with me, Andy, that when we look at the books on our shelves about closing, most of them I wouldn't want to go anywhere near an actual consumer. But I wanted to write a book that a customer would go, yeah, that, that, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable with that.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, I was thinking about that as I was reading your book, which was that actually your book was the first book I've ever read on closing. So <laughs> think about that. There are decades of, of being in this business because uh, the same reason that we don't like those books is I just thought they were irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, especially but, in in the business to business space. You know, I tell people, I said, well, that's interesting. You know, you're trying to hire somebody like a client. You're trying to hire a new sales rep, and they, one of the one things they put in the job description is, you know, we want somebody who's a closer. Yeah. And I said, well, that's kind of interesting. So tell me, how often are you in the room when the customer makes the decision? Well, we're never in the room when the customer. Oh, okay, just wanted to ask. Yeah. <laughs> it's like all these <laughs> books about you know. Really, written even though it's ostensibly for business to business sales, or really for sort of this image of the prototypical used car salesman.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it can get really, uh, it, I get it. I mean, I understand how uncomfortable some of that can be. And of course, the problem is that I think that any salesperson who's going to read a book or listen to an expert is going to listen through or read through uh, two filters. One filter is going to ask, does this pertain to my experiences up to this point? And then the other one is, will I be able to use this in the future? So if you're looking at a technique that's being shared and you went, you look and you go, oh, boy, if I try and fit that into any conversation I've ever had, it would be so foreign and so bizarre that I would fail at it. And by the way, uh, how they're asking me to perform this is so inconsistent with my own approach that I can't use it anyway. Exactly. So I think there's the discriminating salesperson, appropriately so, that's going to look at it and say, if if I can't use this, this is it isn't relevant to me? That doesn't matter. And I think that that's where most of these books fail. They teach techniques that 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 are going to be very very difficult uh, for the for the average person to be able to pull off.
0: Okay. Well, let's sort of back up and unpack this from the beginning. So what? Yeah. This may sound too simplistic, but what is closing? Uh, because I think because I think people have different definitions of what closing yeah, actually
1: is. Agreed. So if we start with the definition, and this was it's interesting, you should ask the question because when I was researching the book, I tried to find the origin of the very word closing. Why do we use the word? Closing, and you know, somebody over here said, "Well, it has to do with it it originated in the real estate field where we're closing the escrow or the closing process or whatever." And is that nobody really knows. I know that if I were writing sales theory from scratch, I wouldn't actually use the word closing. I would use the word agreement, sure, because I think that the, the very term closing can be misconstrued as to something that I'm doing to someone. If I'm looking at agreement, then it implies a partnership right from the very beginning. Exactly. So. So I define closing as the process of gaining agreements throughout the conversation, culminating in a final agreement to purchase. And so there's this, this, uh, what the author Richard Tiller calls a decision-making rhythm that gets established here where the customer can make their decision a little bit at a time. And it's so much easier to purchase that way than just looking that big old, you know, what's it going to take to get you to buy my product? You know, that's just, that's nuts. That's crazy. So we got to simplify it. We got to break it down into a series of agreements. And that's where you start to get into some of the psychological background, uh, that's the basis of why I wanted to write the book on the first place.
0: Well, right, and I think one of those emotion-based factors you talk about, in, and I talk about this in my books as well, is you know I call sales a service that you provide to a customer, and yeah. you reiterate that in your book as well. Is that, yeah, you know, it's even closing itself. You say is an act of service. And sure. So, what do you mean about? I understand sales being the service. So, what did you mean about closing being an act of service?
1: Well, look. Every now and then, you'll hear a, well, I'll hear a salesperson say, "Well, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful. I, I, I'm being careful about whether I should ask them if they want to buy it because I don't want to be disrespectful." And I look at that and I go, and I just take it back to my early career in real estate sales and think, if you want to be disrespectful to a customer, try this: force them to come to you, hat in hand, and say. Hey um so you know uh we were just thinking here uh if we at some point if we wanted like to uh, buy how 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 do, how do we do that you want to talk about disrespect? That's disrespect, is making your customer come to you and ask permission to buy. So there's the idea of, here of, I believe it's the job of the salesperson to make it easy for people to do what they want to do anyway. It's the job of the salesperson to make it easy for them to purchase and that's again, violates, when, when you look at, at what closing has been taught, it violates that very rule. It doesn't make it easy because it's a high pressure environment and that should, I, think, just, I think that ship has sailed. I think we're, we're in a new time.
0: Yeah, well, I agree. I mean, I led off my second book with a quote from Bezos, Jeff Bezos, founder CEO of Amazon, was saying, "I thought it was a great quote about sort of encapsulates what you're talking about with sales." He said, "Is you know, we don't make money when we sell things; we make money when we help customers make purchase decisions." Yeah, yeah, and and that's it. That's what you're really talking about here, right? Right. And I, and so, I think and I think if you do that too, to a point you make in your book, which and others, you know, increasingly are making too, that we we have this. This lingering, you know, perception of salespeople about mm-hmm. you know negative stereotype, stereotypical perceptions of, of most you know salespeople, which I think most salespeople you know don't rise to the to meeting that stereotype, right? But it but it still exists. But you know, one way that you begin to put that to bed is, as you said, is have a service orientation to your selling and your closing.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I I just finished a uh, a twenty five city tour around this uh, book, and one of the things that I do in the tour is I ask people to uh, you know describe that salesperson, that sort of that old school salesperson uh, that is the you know I, I think it was. I think it was Dan Pink in uh, To Sell as Human where he had done some man-on-the-street interviews, word association. Mm-hmm. I say person, you say what? And I think the number one answer was pushing, number two was sleazy, and number three was used cars. And so I asked my audience, describe that person physically. What, it, it, you're seeing them in your mind. Describe them. What are you seeing? And they all come up with the same thing. Product in the hair, cheap suit, uh, you know, chest hair, medallion, bling, uh, white <laughs> shoes, uh, smells of old spice covering up uh, stale cigarette smoke. Right. Right. And, and then I ask them the question. Now think of a salesperson that you know not a peer or somebody in the room, but a friend, a family member, somebody you do business with, does that person look anything at all like the person that we just described? And of course the answer is no. And yet that image is out there. So we've got this battle to face and we got to try and figure out what side do we stand on? How do we want to align ourselves even in what Closing is and and how that can be and must be seen as a service rather than as a manipulation.
0: Well, wow, but you, you make it pretty clear. You have a, a quote in the book which relates to that, which I thought was an interesting. Quote, which you said it's impossible to continually act in a manner that is inconsistent with your values and your character. Yeah. So, yeah. so implicit in that is, I think, is what you're saying is that salespeople feel forced oftentimes to adopt behaviors that aren't consistent with who they are. Yeah, and why why is that the case?
1: Well, look at this. I, I know we're getting into some of your expertise here too, where you look and you say, "Here's the skill. Here's the skill. Here's the skill. Here's the skill." And uh, if you have a salesperson who's looking at and saying, "Okay, well, that's the skill," and I'm trying to fit it into somebody that I am not, uh, I might try it for a little bit, but it, my mind is going to shut that off. So right. it, it, just look at it, and just in every, just you know, just think about goal setting, and a, you know, I, I want to lose ten pounds. Okay, well that's fine, but if you're 190, you wanna to get to 180, but in your mind you're 190 and you can't get off of that 190 image, you're gonna eat like you're 190, you're gonna work out like you're 190 and you're never gonna weigh 180 until you get your brain changed, that's not gonna work. So if we look at it and we say, this is the skill of closing and we throw it at somebody who has a different perception of what closing is and who they are as a, uh, as, a as a human being serving other human beings, you gotta get that paradigm right if you think that you're gonna make any progress in in changing the behaviors in any way.
0: Okay. Well, you talk then back to a comment you made before is you talk about closing not being this one epic event, you know. Yeah. Like, I like to say from my my early days, press hard there, three copies. Um, <laughs> which is a reference that most young people don't understand these right, days. Right, I know, <laughs> that's exactly right. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, You probably do it from the real estate business, you do, but um, is yeah, it's a series of smaller decisions?
1: Yeah, right, right,
0: and or agreements. Let's say yes. that, you, that you talk about not necessarily yeah. decisions, but um, you know that sort of. I guess maybe set me thinking about okay, well, how is that different from you know salespeople always talk about the trial close and do trial <laughs> closes and so on. I mean, how's that different from what you're talking about?
1: Well, there's two things here. First of all, what is the motive behind the closing? So if I'm when I talk about the series of agreements here, the most important. Thing a perspective or paradigm for a salesperson to carry into that definition is to understand that I'm not talking about an agreement that a customer makes with me. That's not the important agreement. The important agreement is the agreement that a customer makes with herself or with himself. That's the agreement that really makes a difference because okay. what's going to happen through this process is that our, you know, our brains, if you get into the psychology of closing a little bit, you know our brains, are, we're making decisions whether we know it or not. The question is, and you could look at this boy, this whole you know dual process theory. I mean, a lot's been written about this, but to really, on a very simple level. You can look at the reflective brain and you can look at the reflexive brain. And that reflective brain is that that consideration brain. I'm taking all of the component parts. I'm putting it all together. I'm making a rational reasoned decision. But the reflexive brain is making all of those mini decisions all throughout the process. Do I like you? Do I trust you? Is it cold in here? What do I think? And, and, And I'm doing it subconsciously all throughout the process. So here's the problem. If I am not gaining agreements, and again, not for me, but in not helping the customer to gain agreements with themselves, then they get to the very end, I say, well, what do you think? Would you like to make this yours? And now your customer's gonna come back and say something like, I need to think about it. Now that frustrates salespeople, but you know what they're really saying? What they're really saying is they need to think about it. So we teach them the skill and <laughs> sales training. Well, what do you need to think about? And if they're gonna be honest, they're gonna look at you and go, well, I need to think about what I need to think about. And that's true. They're not being smart, Alex, on it. That's really where they're at. On the other hand, if we can help them to make agreements with themselves, then what happens? They're making a series of reflective agreements. And those reflective agreements take a much more prominent view in their brain. So now when they get to the end and they're trying to lump it all together, they can look back at all of those reflective agreements. They're big, they're bold, they're right there. And they can sum all those up and say, boy, it sure seems to make sense based on the component parts that got me to this place.
0: Yeah, I mean, that... that you know, comports with what uh, you know, Cialdini talks about in, in influence, yeah. right? And when you talk about consistency. So when people yeah. are start, you know, making these series of agreements with themselves, when they get to the point of making the final decision, you know, they have a psychological need almost to be coherent with those and to, you know, be consistent with the decisions that they've made already.
1: It would be illogical to do anything else right. if you if I've if I've said yes all three of because people don't argue with themselves. That's the idea. They might argue with you, the salesperson, but they're not going to argue with themselves. So if we get them into that decision-making rhythm and they are making those agreements with themselves, then yeah, it becomes illogical. Now, look, there's nothing manipulative about this because at any time uh, you can ask them a question that they're going to disagree with, and they certainly have that right. But if you're if you want to make it easy for them to purchase, if you want to reduce the cognitive strain, the best way to do that is to help your customer purchase a little bit at a time, but to make sure that that's a reflect, reflective, sure. well-reasoned, uh, a logical uh, um, a process rather than just a sort of from the gut type of thing.
0: Right. So how, give an example of how you help them do that so people understand that are listening.
1: Well, I think the best way to do that is to, is to determine if, if you understand the way that a buyer wants to buy, then you can go back and you can reverse engineer your sales process accordingly. So if you look at and you say, for example, you know, a customer is going to buy, it it could be anything, let's just say a car. Okay. Mm -hmm. so if if I'm looking at and saying, here's a consumer, they're thinking about buying a car, what are the most important decisions that they're going to be making about buying a car. They're going to have to decide on uh, you know, whether they want an SUV or a sedan. They're going to have to decide on what the features that are most important. They're going to have to decide on their price point. So so if we look at it we say, these are the most important decisions that our customer is going to make, then I can build my sales process just to be able to help them uh, to, to make each of those key decisions, those milestone decisions separately that will roll up into a final decision because all of the small decisions uh, were made first. Mm-hmm. So obviously this requires a deep knowledge of your customer, of their motivation, of their experience, of their background. This will never stand alone. You can't just look at it and say, well, I'm not going to do anything else, but I'm going to close. It's not the way it works. But if you know your customer well and you can take them through those processes, then you can figure out how do they want to buy it. Then reverse engineer your sales presentation according to your customers' buying milestones.
0: Right, and it's and to me, I want the the first decision point though that a customer makes is this, and you know, has been research it's been done on this is is the binary decision: am I going to do this or not? Yeah, I mean that precedes at least my experience has shown me, and I know there's research that says this as well. Is that precedes all other agreements? Is the first yes/no? Yeah, and I, th- and I think so often salespeople don't pay attention to that, and that's why they end up getting these no decision decisions with such high frequency.
1: Mm-hmm. Is
0: they just make the assumption the customer, since they're engaging in the process, that they must want to buy, that so they think it's a good idea, and so they they don't they don't get that agreement that first. Yeah, am I going to do this or not?
1: Yeah, yeah. So my take on that is to think that the highest predictor of urgency in a buying decision is dissatisfaction. It's not promotion, it's not, you know, your takeaway clothes, it's what's wrong with your life. And the higher the dissatisfaction, the greater the need to satisfy that dissatisfaction. So, you know, look, if if you've ever been to the point where you were so hungry that you were surprised at what you were willing to eat, you know, and you and you, you go to the refrigerator, you open the door, nothing to eat, close the door, wait 5 minutes, lower your standards open the door again. There it is. It's a jar of pickles, four shelf in the back. Hasn't been opened since the Reagan administration, but if you're hungry enough, you're going to eat it. The single greatest predictor of urgency is dissatisfaction. So, even when we're looking at closing, uh, as we're looking at gaining agreements, there's the question of saying, "Why is this customer standing here in the first place?" and that is going to give you i think the truest sign as to whether you've conquered that first hurdle does this person even want to purchase is that why they are here yeah but i mean people could still want
0: to purchase but make the decision not to at that point in time right that that go no go right and they could have dissatisfaction but to your point is it there are other factors they have to take into account whether it rises to the level of dissatisfaction that's worth the investment of time and money to fix it
1: Yes, but that dissatisfaction can be scaled. You can put it on a scale. You show me somebody with a low dissatisfaction, I'll show you somebody who's got a much less probability of buying. The higher the dissatisfaction, the greater the chance that they're going to have to solve it. Because that dissatisfaction correlates to some sort of pain. So if I can understand what's going on, what is wrong with their life right now. So, if, for example, again, let's go back to the car sales sure. uh, example. If I'm a car salesperson and I ask somebody, you know, so what what are you thinking about buying a car? Oh, well, you know, we're just looking and we're just, you know, are they real? Are they not? I don't know yet. But if somebody says, well, yesterday I parked in the wrong spot and a crane fell in my car and the insurance company called this morning and said, it's totaled, go buy a new car. Well, guess what? That's a buyer based on not your deal, not your special, not your promotion, not your price, not even how good you are it's based on their dissatisfaction. So if you can think about the dissatisfaction scale of your own customers, high dissatisfaction equals high urgency. They're going to buy somewhere. It's only a question whether they're going to buy from you.
0: Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I mean I I'm not sure I'm in complete agreement about the dissatisfaction driven. You know, I know the triggers sort of have to do with that, and I understand the trigger theory, but but at least in the business to business space, I mean what I've found over time is that that ultimately when people are going through the decision-making process, one, what scientists have shown is that an integral part of every buying process is what they call this mental test drive. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: this test drive tends to be more aspirational, right? I mean, if I walk into a a BMW dealership thinking I want to buy a car, you know, I sit behind the wheel in the showroom and suddenly I'm taking a test drive down 101 in California or Highway 1 in California, you know, with the wind blowing through my hair and the sun on my face and the top down and so on and and that tends to be more aspirational. So I, I'm interested what you think about this mix between aspiration and pain, because I I tend to come down more on the that people motivated more by how things are going to be different for them, which to me is aspirational, as opposed to I can f- fix the pain, but then I'm sort of maybe same place I was before. I've just gotten rid of the pain.
1: It's a it's a fair point. So if if we look at From my perspective, the single greatest predictor of urgency is dissatisfaction, but the dissatisfaction has to be joined with what I refer to in the book as future promise or the hope of what my life is going to look like. So it is true that you might have somebody who comes into, well, let's use uh, you know, let's use real estate as an example. Let's use home sales. So if somebody's going out, they're looking at model home, You're walking into a show show home because they had nothing better to do on Sunday afternoon. Right. So the dissatisfaction right. on their home right now, not particularly high. This is very different from the customer who's there because their house burned down, right? Or it's a job reload or whatever. Okay. Or a- so now they're looking around, they're walking around the home and they're going, oh, man, look at this. this, is really cool over here. Well, you we don't have that. And, oh, look at this kitchen. It's got all the latest and greatest, and we don't have that. And what's happening? That future promise is actually raising current dissatisfaction. It's sort of like if you if you uh, get in a a brand new car that a friend of yours just bought, and now you're looking at you know here's the the, the front view camera, and here's the you know the air conditioned seats on a hot day, and here's all this stuff, and, and, and just a new car smell. Then you get back into your old car, and now what do you do? What is that smell? You know, and it's like why is my you know I, I have to turn around when I'm backing up. So what happens? The, to your point here, that future promise, that idea of, as Daniel Kahneman puts it, anticipated memory, uh, it will create that dissatisfaction, and in fact, it has to create that dissatisfaction. Something about my future has to separate me from my past in order to get at least the rationalization to be able to move forward along those lines.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think we're we're talking somewhat the same thing, but it's it's the dissatisfaction becomes something that. Is an anchor weighing you down from reaching where yeah. you want to go as opposed to just yeah. fixing a pain point and then resolving a pain point right I mean I could sure. have I could have a broken arm and we need to fix the broken arm, but when it's fixed, i'm still living the same life I did as opposed to yeah. living a new life so yeah I, yeah I I think there's yeah sort of similar things it's just what the motivation ultimately is okay so so uh
1: can I just throw jump in with go one ahead, other go thing? Ahead, go ahead. I was gonna look we'll up suggest that whether you're talking about what's wrong with their life now or what your customer wants to look their life wants their life to look like moving forward, one of the things that often gets missed in closing is that we don't pull those factors very effectively into the closing process. That yes. is that we isolate them, we understand what's wrong with your life, we understand what you want your life to look like, but uh, they're just even drawing that back into the recap of saying, you had said this was what was wrong here. You had said this is what you wanted to be right. Now let's evaluate what we've got right here according to your standards, not according to my product, but according to your standards. Now there's that opportunity to uh, really uh, have, you know, you're putting your product on trial, but appropriately so, because if it doesn't match what the customer wanted it to match in the first place, then we're all just wasting our time and our breath.
0: Yeah. You know, and I think To that point, exactly. I think that an effective way to do that when you have that conversation is, is through a series of questions that basically recap what you've been talking about to this point. So you're recapping the agreements that you've reached already yeah. and getting them to agree again that, yes, this is what we agreed to, or yes, this is what's important to me, or whatever that internal agreement is. And yeah, then, then you're left to serve with the last question, which is is not now a good time to make a change?
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, look, and it, it's it's a it speaks to the idea that if your final closing question has to be really super sophisticated, something probably went wrong in that process. And that's why when I even when I wrote Closing 2.0, I wanted to break it down. And even the book itself is it's broken down into it's a really easy read because it's actually written in 30 chapters and um, each chapter is only five minutes long because the point about closing is to look at it and say, here's five minutes of of some thoughts on closing, but now the question is, how do I apply it? His closing is not a theory. Closing is an action. When I'm looking at the way that I'm gaining agreements, these are behaviors that have to be uh, that. well, it's a behavior, which means it has to be behaved on, not just read about. So the idea here is to take 30 days on a journey to be able to break down all the small component pieces and to be able to look at it and say, okay, how am I doing in this area? How comfortable am I? But I do think that there are a lot of salespeople who think so much about that final close and 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 making sure that it's, you know, uh, uh, extremely well crafted. And I, boy, I, I'll tell you what, I think if you're doing your job right, you ought to be able to look at your customer and go, eh, what do you think? Well, no, <laughs> oh, exactly. You know? Exactly. I mean, I,
0: so back to Daniel Kahneman. I mean, one of the things yeah. Kahneman's favorite, famous for is what he calls the peak end rule. That yeah, when people go through it. an experience and they look back at the experience, they basically factor in two items into their decision one is the peak event during that experience, and one is the last event. And so in in my book amp up your sales I translated that into sales I call it peak and selling. And so yeah. if you look at your various touch points during a sales process. If the close is considered a peak event, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so your peak event needs to be how responsive you are up front, the quality of your discovery questions, you know, yeah. things that happen before them that are part of these leading you to those pair of series of agreements. So to your point exactly, the actual close should be an afterthought.
1: Yes. If if there is a peak moment or an end moment, it's not actually the question. It's to, In my mind, it should be the the little mini celebration that takes place after they say yes that somehow memorializes what just happened and makes them feel good about that purchase. Now, maybe that's a legitimate peak end, but if you're putting all of your weight into the question itself, yeah, you're, you're yeah. doing a service. Yeah, a yeah.
0: peak event becomes before the decision. Like I said, I, I always... Try to coach people is let's make discovery the peak event, <laughs> you know, that or the first yeah. the first contact you have with them, make that the peak event. Right. And then, like I said, everything else is is uh, more pro forma from that standpoint. So, uh, Jeff, now we're coming to the last segment of the show where I got some standard questions I asked all my guests, and hey. you've been through this before, so I had to change the questions for you. Yeah. And okay. uh, so, we got some new ones here. Mm-hmm. And so, the first one this is sort of an interesting question, we get a lot of sort of Controversy about this one. So, in your mind, is it easier to teach a technical non-salesperson how to sell, or teach a salesperson how to sell a technical product?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, it, 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 boy, uh, there's a lot of clarification that could go into that, but I, I would suggest that um, it's probably easier to teach a salesperson how to sell a technical product. And the reason is because of that belief thing that we were talking about earlier. So many people believe that they can't sell because their experience is trying to sell calendars or candles as part of a school fundraiser in the seventh grade. And they were so miserable that they have this visceral reaction that says, I can't sell. Hey, if you don't believe that you can sell, I'm not sure that I can teach you how to sell anything at all. But if you have a core belief that that you that you can sell in the first place, uh, I'm not sure that that the level of technical expertise is required is the key factor there.
0: Okay, all right. So next question is: What's one book, non-business, non-sales book, that you think every salesperson should read?
1: Oh boy, non-business, non-sales. I think I would probably go with. David McCullough's biography of John Adams. a um, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning book, yep, an absolutely amazing book. book. First of all, it's a great book just to really understand what really happened um, right. in what almost this grand experiment that almost didn't happen in the first place. But when you look at the sales skills involved uh, in trying to launch a country and trying to get people unified, it is uh, an absolutely fascinating, fascinating work. On, uh, on how you uh, apply uh, uh, such a gr- on a grand scale. Once you look at that, then you are going to look at it and go, "Eh, maybe the sales thing isn't as hard as we thought it was." <laughs> well, compared yeah, to especially, especially
0: right, especially when you take somebody like Adams, who was considered not to be a great yeah. personal at a personal level,
1: right, but
0: was so influential in the Constitutional Convention and the shaping yes. of the Constitution that, uh, yeah, it's sort of interesting how somebody with very little personal attractiveness from a, a, a personality standpoint, was able to be so influential.
1: But it certainly speaks to the idea of drive, of perseverance, of conviction. Yep. Yep. But he had a lot going against him. First of all, he had to stand in the shadow of uh, George Washington. I mean, he had to, Thomas Jefferson, all of them. Thomas yeah. Jefferson, who basically owned him. Right. Uh, you know, it, it was a really, really uh, tough uphill battle. But again, if you feel to yourself to be any type of underdog in any area of your life, this is a great book to be able to look at and say, hey, how does the power of drive and conviction carry you through to do an amazing, some pretty amazing things?
0: I agree. It was a great book. Um, so, here's a tough one. If you could change one thing about your business self, what would that be?
1: I. <laughs> how authentic am I allowed to be <laughs> here, Andy? As how authentic, authentic to- as you want to be. Open the kimono right here. I I am a basically insecure person. Uh, I I remember the first time on an airplane, I was reading about a phenomenon called the imposter syndrome. Right, right. Uh, this this irrational fear that people are going to figure out that you're basically just making stuff up. And I remember sitting on that plane and just hiding behind the document, going, "Who who, who told?" And it was my counselor, who I, I, I've seen a business coach for a long time, who said, "Jeff, let's just recap your career and look at the you know the stuff that you've done and the people of you." She she had to actually dial it back and say, "It's an irrational fear that people are going to figure out. It's irrational." And and so, but but I think if that's the one thing I. I I do, you know, struggle sometimes with that insecurity, and, sure, and on the other hand, maybe it keeps me motivated and challenged. I always want to try and and uh, exceed my own expectations.
0: Yeah, well, I think any of us who write for a living, speak for a living, podcast, yeah, yeah we all we all have that at some some level or another. All right, yeah. um, last question. So, sure. do you have a favorite quotation or words of wisdom that you live by?
1: Uh, yeah, it's something that I, I've always taught my kids. It's something that I try and live by, and it has to do with the idea. And I think it's particularly timely right now because I believe that we live in a society that um, it really thinks very little about consequences. And so the, the, the quotation is, and I, I I I'm gonna cite it to Howard Hendricks, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, you're free to make choices, you're not free to escape the consequences of those choices. And so if we look at it, we say there are that that works both ways. I'm free to make any choice that I want, but I'm not free to escape the consequences. If I make a bad choice, I have to accept the bad consequences as I make good choices that I'm entitled to the good consequences. So we are free to make our choices however we want to, but we're not free to escape the consequences. It is something that I really tried to raise my children by and even to look at it and say, all right, in high school, see what this kid did over here? You're looking at the consequence. What was the choice? What happened over here? And so, uh, you know, I, I think we would be a better people if we were a little bit more conscious about how our choices lead to consequences. All right.
0: Excellent. I love it. All right. Well, Jeff, thanks for joining me again. Really enjoyed the conversation. So tell folks that they can find out more about Closing 2.0 and connect with you.
1: Sure. Everything is available on uh, jeffshore.com. We we put out a uh, a Saturday morning newsletter. It's absolutely free. But it's a video newsletter, just a few minutes, uh, especially for those of you weekend warriors who are out there uh, doing your work on, on the weekend. It's a Saturday morning, sort of three minutes to sort of get your head on straight. So that's available at uh, jeffshore.com, as well as any of the other resources that we have out there.
0: Okay. Excellent. Well, again, thanks for joining me. And friends, thank you for taking your time to join us today. And remember, as I always say, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And easy way to do that is to join my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Jeff Shore, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. And if you enjoy Accelerate and the value we're delivering, then please take a quick minute right now to leave your feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen. It would be very much appreciated. So, thanks again for joining me. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.